Greetings, comrades, and welcome to the seventh episode of Chatter on the Skull. And we've got a lot to talk about this week. It's been quite a busy week. So as with the last episode, I actually really liked the format where we switched up the kind of whatever we want to talk about at the beginning and then current events at the end. It's going to be current events at the beginning and then we're going to have, I'm going to introduce a segment that is just going to have to happen over multiple episodes. There's no way I can condense everything I want to say into one episode, but basically it's going to be the beginning of our argumentation guide with conservatives. Should be pretty interesting, should be pretty fun, and hopefully it'll be something unique that is unlike anything you guys have experienced before. Before I jump into today's topics, I do want to say that some people have been upset that there hasn't been as much gaming content on the channel. 100% here, you guys. And that's going to change very shortly. More gaming content is coming back in a big way. So I just want to say that here now. And I just have been very focused on establishing consistent system with the show where I can work out something on a weekly basis and not feel overwhelmed. And I feel like I've 100% done that. I'm very confident and very secure with the system that I made with the show. I think that now I'm finally at a point where I can get back to business with some of my other projects. Without further ado, let's head into the big news that has happened. And uh, the big news is we have to touch on the war in Ukraine because the day after that I finished posting my last episode, we had big news out of Ukraine, which is, of course, they retook Kursan. That's an unbelievable feat. And it's an unbelievable moment of triumph and celebration for a lot of people who have been following this war. And I got what is probably my favorite picture from the liberation of Kyrgyzstan right here, really summing up what the mood of everybody is right now. So I know I shouldn't share too many personal anecdotes, but I have a Ukrainian colleague who was very overjoyed when he heard this news and he comes to me and he says and i apologize for the accent but it, it, it perfectly encapsulates the moment he comes to me and he says did you hear did you hear that we take here son when i hear this my head was like watermelon and beyond that you could just see the obvious joy and hope and optimism in his eyes and it is obviously a great moment to be optimistic because this is a huge, huge, pivotal moment in the war in Ukraine. I thought that the Ukrainians retaking Kyrgyzstan was not going to be in the cards, at least until the beginning of next year. But seeing this happen so quickly and hearing the reports of how disorganized that the Russian retreat has been and how much equipment they have left behind, it is quite a stunning feat. I mean, at the so stunning in the sense that at the rate things are going, we are looking at maybe the greatest military disaster in Russian history. So while I got you guys here, may as well check out some clips from the liberation of <laughs> You can see that that old fella had tears in his eyes. He was wiping and holding back tears. But yeah, it's an incredible moment. Now, one more video here for you guys. And this is obviously just more sanitation. 
And I just like this as a feeling of getting the, getting a feeling of what the energy must be like right now right. in that city or it must have been like at the moment of liberation. And it's tough to imagine. But at least in the 21st century, we have the technology to put ourselves a little bit, a little bit there. Give ourselves a small feeling of what it is to be like in that situation. So here we have some amazing pictures of the liberation or what Kyrgyzstan looks like now, a couple days after the liberation and during the liberation. And while there is a lot of joy, as you can see, there is a substantial amount of damage. We still have fog of war, of course, but we have no idea how much damage the Russians have done to the city. It is, from the reports I've heard, it is tremendous in the sense that they have pretty much obliterated all of the infrastructure in here. This is one of the main bases that the Russians used here was the Kyrgyzstan airport. They stored a ton of equipment here, a ton of helicopters, tons of fuel, jets, everything here. And obviously when they left, they probably completely disabled it to say the least. Yeah, here's everyone, some of their propaganda posters. The order says that we're with, I'm with Russia, essentially is what it says. We're together with Russia, we're one people. That is one of their big propaganda thrusts. Obviously it did not work because it did not seem like many of the people in Kyrgyzstan were too upset to see the Russians go. But honestly, it seems like the liberation of Kyrgyzstan was like an age ago, as now we have moved on to the latest incident, which is this explosion on the Polish border, on the Polish side of the Polish-Ukrainian border, which ended up killing two Polish farmers. So I'll just have some of the photos here of the site for you guys. So now this is definitely a developing story. This happened, I believe, two days ago at this point. When you guys are getting this on Friday, it'll probably be three days ago. And essentially, we now know a little bit more than when things initially happened. At first, it looked like that this was a Russian missile which had been uh, misfired and had found its way into Polish territory. At least this is what the initial reports were saying. However, this looks like this may not be the case. Right now, what it seems like it was is that it was Ukrainian anti-air missiles fired in defense of, fired in defense of themselves against Russian missiles which ended up exploding and killing two Polish civilians. So if that's the case, that's obviously an extraordinary tragedy, but is not a tragedy which has the possibility of triggering World War III, which was the possibility that I was first envisioning when I read this story. A little bit more on that right here. We can see the blast here hit a tractor the trailer we can see some of the debris of the blast happened right here as you can see in the very western section of ukraine eastern section of poland right along the border this is the air system that they believe fired the missiles which caused the explosions s300 and essentially this is an air defense system a ground air defense system whose purpose is to intercept and destroy missiles in fact just as i was starting to record this today Biden has come out and said and pushed back a little bit on this explosion on this missile incident and saying that there's no evidence that it was a deliberate attack, that it came from the Russians. Here we've got a little one minute video we'll watch together. So it's 
The head of NATO and the president of Poland, a member of the alliance, said there was no evidence that the attack was intentional. Based on what we so far know, this is most likely a Ukrainian air defense systems or missiles. Russia bears the responsibility for what happened in, in Poland yesterday because this is a direct uh, result of the ongoing uh, war. On the sidelines of the G20 summit, the G7 NATO leaders held an emergency meeting as Kiev forward. Russia threatened to spill well, we over. make sure we figure out exactly what happened. It's unlikely the lines of the trajectory was fired from Russia. But we'll, we'll, we'll see. I don't know why there's a snake hissing in the background there. The Ukrainian said on Tuesday that it was a Russian missile. Okay. All right, guys. Well, this was another horrible story. Unfortunately, it is not related to the war in Ukraine. So essentially what it looks like now is that, yes, this was a Ukrainian air defense system, which either misfired or was doing its job and went off on, too close to the ground. So definitely still a tragedy. And yes, they said Russia still bears responsibility for this strike as they are the ones that caused this war. But thankfully, we are not in a situation where it looks like this, even if this was an accidental missile strike on Russia's behalf, even if it wasn't deliberate, I'd still say an accidental strike has the possibility to seriously escalate this war. Still, a very tense situation. This war has the possibility of spilling over into Poland and other nearby countries at any point in time. And thankfully, this time, it doesn't look like that's going to happen. That being said, everyone is still obviously on edge. And especially the people of Poland and nearby Baltic states and other Eastern European countries, especially. I know a lot of Polish people watch this show and a lot of Polish people are fans of the channel. And they tell me specifically that they are sweating and they are worried. And I can't imagine what it would be like. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about what the liberation of Kyrgyzstan means for this ongoing war. And obviously it has major implications. Not only has Russia lost its only major regional capital, which it has gained since the start of the war. It has also lost its foothold on the west bank of the Dnieper River. And it has put the Crimean water source into serious jeopardy. So as many of you guys know, but in case you don't know, the Crimean Peninsula is supplied through this water right here, through the Nova Haroka Dam, and it comes down all the way. You can see it if we actually zoom in a little bit closer here. You can see that there is a nice path of water, which comes all the way down, all the way down. Yeah, you get the picture. It goes all the way down into, oh, we're already in Crimea. So, yes, it goes into Crimea and obviously supplies the peninsula with water, which it uses to grow food and do things like run the bathrooms and all those important things that we need to do to survive in a 21st century world. So I'm not sure if the fault, I originally believed that the reservoir was there. I'm not sure if the fall of Kursan will shut off that reservoir as it is still held on the Russian side. So it looks like that it can still, water will still flow from there unless the Ukrainians want to dam it up further, but that would be, I think, pretty much impossible. So at least for now, the Russians will maintain their control on the water supply. We do have images, and one of the images that the Ukrainians released the very next day was of Ukrainian special forces crossing the Dnieper River, 
So it is very plausible that the Ukrainians will continue to keep the pressure on and try and cross the river, although that is a very ambitious goal, as this river will now be quite a defensive territorial buffer for the Russian forces, and it's very likely that the Russians will take forces from Kherson and redeploy them into other areas. If I were Ukraine, and I were the, the battle tactician, the battle master, whatever you want to say, for me, obviously, we can see we're using a, a Google Maps. Who is the author? Just to give the author a shout out here, David Sevi is the author of this particular map. So in any case, it uh, looks like we already do have battle happening today because this was updated today. But if I were the Ukrainian battle strategist, I would move right down the Zaporizhia gap here. This is obviously we can see if we zoom in pretty flat terrain, pretty open terrain. I'm sure the Russians would be expecting an attack here. But that being said, they're in pretty indefensible positions. It is difficult to attack over open plains like this, but it's also difficult to defend them. So if they could burst through these defensive lines, it's theoretically plausible that they could collapse very quickly. And essentially, if they were able to move all the way down to the coast, the Sea of Azov, they would completely cut off Crimea at this point because the only supply lanes to Crimea the Russians have run along the Sea of Azov and come into Crimea proper. As we talked about in one of our update videos, the Kerch Strait Bridge still remains unrepaired and still remains crippled. So Crimea is not getting the supplies that it needs. And of course, port of Sevastopol is effectively useless right now as the Ukrainians have demonstrated that they have the capacity to attack in and around Sevastopol with drones and other missiles and other means of attack. So essentially there's no shipping going in or out of Sevastopol. So yeah, it's looking really bad for the Russians. And if the Ukrainians do end up coming down here, particularly if they take Melitopol, that is a very important supply hub for the Russians right now. Yeah, they could cut off Crimea, leave potentially tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops trapped there and dissolve the Russian southern front. And yeah, if I were the Russians, I don't know what I'd do at this point. So basically, I think the only options for the Russians really are essentially to sue for peace or to try and pull out tons of equipment and then redeploy them in the east and attack from there. But even then, that, that, that's going to be extraordinarily humiliating for Putin and that to me does not seem plausible so what I'm assuming what he's trying to do is try and secure the best peace terms that he can right now and then put a pin in this for five years and then he's gonna if he somehow manages to survive politically and try this whole invasion thing again in five years trying to take the lessons that he may have learned from this complete and utter disaster so that's all I have on the Russo-Ukraine war for you guys. Huge updates. Things are looking extremely good for Ukraine right now and extremely dire for Russia. And at this point, I cannot see a good way out of this for Russia. There is no good options left for them. They only have bad options left on the table. And the longer, it seems like the longer things are going to go on, the worse and worse it's going to get. So now, dear comrades, it is time to check in with the eternal election. Here we are. 
now a week and a half after the actual midterms and we're still waiting for things to shake out but it does look like my prediction is what happened which is the dems will keep the senate and the republicans will keep the house by what appears to be the slimmest of margins and to be fair that's on both sides however it is likely the democrats will pick up one seat once the runoff election in georgia is finished and uh, looking since we have last convened they finally called nevada for the democrats cortez masto was able to beat at uh, let's look at the actual results here beat, beat adam laxalt by very slim margins by about just under ten thousand votes and by less than a single point so it was a very close there but her winning uh, and her retaining her incumbent seat gave democrats the senate control regardless of what happens in georgia so that is a big win for them and holding on to the senate is definitely a huge boon for the democrats it was i would say that the map was not in their favor particularly in this election cycle they had a lot more vulnerable incumbents up than the republicans however they managed to not only hold on but actually gain a single seat excuse me i shouldn't say that because i believe in not counting our political chickens until they hatch and of course i would say warnock is favored here in georgia nothing is impossible in politics and he could certainly be defeated in the runoff so moving over to the house where we finally and this was just yesterday so we had the senate declared about two days after I put up my midterm updates. And now just yesterday, we have uh, the Republicans claiming House control. This has gone up a little bit now. They're sitting around 221 seats once everything is projected to shake out. Moving to the actual projection of what they have, or excuse me, moving to the actual results of what they have rather than a projection. You can see that they just yesterday went over that threshold to 218. And while this does give Republicans House control, it definitely helps to have more people to secure that majority than less. So essentially what can happen is if you don't have enough people to vote on a particular bill, it can go down. From my understanding, one of the intricacies of the American system is that this vote for the speaker happens, I believe it happens every single time they convene. So essentially, if not enough Republicans show up to work that day, a Democratic speaker can be elected based on the fact the Republicans just don't happen to have the votes. So having a small majority, it is still a majority, so you can't take that away from them. But that being said, having much more padding in your majority gives you a lot more political power. There's no question about it that when you have more seats, you have more power, you have more things that you can do. So the Republicans are going to always have to be on their toes. They're going to have to be whipping their votes constantly to make sure that nobody ever disagrees with them because you have a handful of Republicans disagree with the party line. All of a sudden your agenda falls apart. So yeah, it is definitely a win for them. It's not the win that they were hoping for. They were hoping for, as we said, a red wave. And uh, one of the things I mentioned to you guys before is that I have a roster of people on the right, which I view and check in with and see what they're saying. And it has been great to watch the results come in from this midterm. But there was actually something that really caught my ear and I guess my eye, I suppose. It was a clip that kind of went, I guess, semi-viral, you might say. 
where they brought Milo Yiannopoulos back from the grave somehow when he was on uh, Tim Pool's show. And he actually said something that was pretty, pretty poignant, I think, in terms of what the Republicans were feeling and what they wanted from this election, which is that essentially they wanted blood. They wanted their opponents to be humiliated and destroyed and scattered amongst the wind. And they didn't get that. And they didn't get that. And they were being for that moment of great catharsis, especially after 2020 and not doing as hot in 2020 as they thought they would either. They were coming in hoping that 2022 would give them this moment of relief. And it didn't. And yeah, so the Republicans are not in a great shape right now, not getting the types of gains that they were hoping that they would get from this election cycle. So moving into governorship, so we can see like this country is pretty split because it's going to end up being, uh, actually, no, there will be one more Republican gubernatorial state than Democratic. So it'll end up being 26-25. So the other big results we did have is we finally had the gubernatorial elections called. Nevada did flip from a boy, Joe Lombardo. I Like I said, I love that name. And uh, somebody mentioned that they live in Nevada and Joe Lombardo is a pretty moderate Republican. That's probably one of the reasons why he ended up winning this gubernatorial race. The Republicans did end up picking that one. And then the most contested one, and this just happened as well, is they finally called the Arizona election for Katie Hobbs over Carrie Lake. And Carrie Lake is a well-known crazy person who is an election denier, who is definitely a Trump supporter. And yeah, so this election went down to the wire again. See if we can maybe get a little bit closer of closer picture of the results. Maricopa County, once again, this is where Phoenix is. So the most populous county in Arizona coming down to the wire, almost a 50-50 county once again. And yeah, Arizona quickly becoming a very hotly contested state, a very closely contested swing state. And after more than a week of counting, it looks like Katie Hobbs was the winner. And it's funny because one of the things that Carrie Lake came out and said is that winners should be declared on election night. And if she got her way, then Katie Hobbs would have won by 53% because when we were covering it on the stream, she had a huge lead. And I thought that for sure she was going to wrap this up pretty quickly and easily. But once again, it came down to the wire here where Katie Hobbs only ended up winning by, it looks like, just under 20,000 votes. So very close once again in Arizona. And we also didn't have a call in the Senate race, but that was not as close as the gubernatorial race. Mark Kelly winning his race pretty easily over Blake Masters. So this is pretty much the end, hopefully, of the midterms. Maybe I'll give a very brief update once we have the final numbers in the House but it looks like the Republicans will eke out a slim majority in the House and the Democrats will probably pick up a Senate seat. I would definitely say that Warnick has probably got about a 75% chance to win this seat. I obviously, I don't know for sure, but he's definitely the odds on favorite, I would say. And then unfortunately, we have the entrance of Donald Trump back into politics. This is something that happened a couple days ago. On Tuesday, where Trump announced that, yes, of course, as we all knew, he is going to rerun for president and he's going to run in the 2024 primary for the Republican Party. These are things that, yes, we all already knew, 
but now it's obviously confirmed and we have the first contested in the race for president in 2024 and it's a it's an old face and definitely when i was watching his announcement it was not as high energy as donald trump has been known to be he was definitely feeling a little bit low energy this time and one of the things i think is interesting is that we have seen yes a sea change since the midterms i don't know if it's going to stick we'll have to watch and see how things actually go because so far ron DeSantis has not actually announced a presidential bid it's all theoretical at this point he has only hinted that he is thinking about it maybe there remains a small possibility that he won't actually run and donald trump will actually be or will run i guess not unopposed but at least unopposed by his most substantial challenger so after the midterms we have seen donald trump look maybe his most politically vulnerable since he announced back in 2015 that he was going to run for president he is looking like he might actually be in serious trouble of losing his grip on the republican base to florida governor ron DeSantis. and i think part of this announcement was to try and stave off and maybe stop some of the bleeding by at least being the guy who's in the race now, by being the guy who is heading up the Republican Party, or at least being the only one out there heading up the Republican Party coming up to 2024. But I am not sure if this kind of surge for Ron DeSantis will stick. Yes, a lot of Trump's chosen candidates did bad, but actually uh, one of the things you, you uh, watched on the old Daily Wire stream Good old Mikey Knowles made a good point that I thought was worth putting in the old memory banks, which is that a lot of the candidates in which Ron DeSantis endorsed and Trump did not, so obviously a clear divergence there, didn't do so well either. So that while, yes, Ron DeSantis' star looks on the rise right now, especially in comparison to Trump's, Ron DeSantis hasn't really had a lot of that same amount of scrutiny that Trump has. And he hasn't had to really define himself outside of his home state. He hasn't really had any political influence outside of Florida yet so far. He hasn't won any elections outside of Florida yet so far. So I think it's very possible that as time goes on, people have short memories and people forget about this DeSantis bump and start to move back towards Trump. So I think it's very possible that when Ron DeSantis actually gets in the ring, and actually start standing up to real political scrutiny, it's possibly can't stand up to it in the way that Trump can. Because if there is one thing that you have to do, if you want to be the leader of the free world, it's take infinite amounts of crap from everybody all the time. And it's not an easy thing to do, <laughs> that's for sure. And a lot of people definitely cave under that amount of scrutiny. And I think it's possible that Ron DeSantis could. At the same time, it is also possible because he is, I think, more of a shrewd political actor, especially in comparison to Donald Trump, that he is able to navigate those hurdles better and actually succeed more than Donald Trump. And if that's the case, then, yeah, I am very worried for the American people and the state that the American Republic might be headed. But unfortunately, we're not going to know those answers in, until 2024 and 2024 is going to be a hot like you thought i feel like you thought 2020 was hotly contested i'm really worried about 2024 and it could get even worse we'll have to see i do worry that 
Republican catharsis. They maybe they were denied it, yes, in 2022. But if they actually learn from their mistakes and they actually kind of clean up their act, they do have a possibility to really do well in 2024. But what remains to be seen is if they'll actually learn the lessons that they need to learn. And honestly, my money is betting on no, because while the thing about Trump is that he definitely coasts on that 2016 victory. When you go back and you look at 2016 and everything like that, you realize how extremely lucky he was and how so many things had to go right for him to win in that election. And so far, he hasn't been able to come anywhere close to replicating that success. And to me, that's the one thing that I do think might end up being his real big kneecapping factor and end up taking him down particularly in comparison to Ron DeSantis, because you do have to have victories, especially for the Republicans, because if you're not winning, then they will dump you so quick. Just look at the conservative prime minister revolving door in Great Britain and the conservative rotating door of opposition leaders here in Canada. If you're not winning, you're done. No thought of giving them a second chance. So with that, we can leave the milieu of American politics behind at least for a little bit. I was joking on the Discord that I really think that American politics is specifically designed to create the most amount of political news and political punditry and political commentary as possible. It's like they designed their political system with the want to create sort of an industry of political punditry around it. So that ends our segment on current events and politics. But before I break open what I really wanted to get into for the next segment, I'm going to tell you guys a story. And that is the story of the airbender versus the earthbender. If you guys remember a couple, I guess it would be a week ago or so, I made a fun little video where I asked the question, what if the four elements were the various four quadrants on the political compass spectrum? And it ended up being that the airbenders were the libertarian left and earthbenders were the authoritarian left. And I actually had that idea. It all stemmed from actually this little conflict right here and trying to explain the way I argue, see the world differently from the way a lot of other people on the left might argue. And what I want to do with this series that we're going to be doing for the next couple episodes is teach you how to argue like an airbender. Because when you go out there, most people on the left, that is, will argue with conservatives like they are earthbenders. For example, a lot of the debate bros, guys like Hassan and Vash and, you know, those guys, they are earthbenders. And when I talked about them uh, in that video and I talked about earthbenders specifically in that video they have a core of very strong arguments that are very rooted and ethical and logical morals and they will rely on these arguments essentially to beat their opponents into submission I also have a mod on my discord who is an exceptional earthbender when it comes to their arguments, they just take them and they just smash, smash, smash until victory is achieved and their opponent is a pulp on the floor. But that's not my style personally. And this is an issue when it comes to airbenders and earthbenders. And just like the last Avatar series, 
these two elements oppose each other and they don't see eye to eye sometimes, even though they're on the same side, usually speaking, and particularly, obviously, in, in Aang and Toph's case, they're on the same side. They all want to defeat the Fire Lord, but sometimes their strategies and tactics and how they go about defeating the Fire Lord vary greatly. And those disagreements can lead to conflict sometimes and tensions. And I think the real hard part for earthbenders to accept about the way we airbenders argue is that it takes a certain degree of empathy for the devil. Not necessarily sympathy, but you need to have empathy for the devil. And that can be a very difficult thing to do sometimes. So what is the essence of arguing like an earthbender? There's this scene in The Legend of Korra here where Tenzin is trying to teach Korra the essence of airbending. And he gives her this task here where she has to go through these gates without touching them. And essentially, he explains it like you need to be like the leaf and let the currents guide you and flow with them and move through the paths of least resistance. Like he says there, to be able to switch directions at any moment. So obviously, the difference here where Toph is training Aang and she tells him when the rock is coming towards him, there's no way around that rock. You've got to meet it head on. Our philosophy is different in the sense that, yes, I, and that's the thing. That's why I have someone who is an excellent earthbender as a discord mod, because I recognize that you need that skill set sometimes, but on Ang's end, his first inclination is to move out of the way and attack the rock from a different angle. And that is as well, definitely an essence of what I'm talking about here so I've given you a metaphor here to try and explain what we're doing, but now let's get into some actual practicality. What exactly am I talking about and how am I going to teach you how to talk to people, how to act, how to argue? Let's now get into the practicalities. So now the rubber meets the road and I'm going to teach you guys about something called verbal judo. And if you guys are in a capacity where maybe you're in an emergency responder situation, you're in law enforcement, you're in the military, you're in emergency medical services. This is a concept that may actually been taught to you because it was taught to me through my professional circumstances. And honestly, <laughs> that makes it weird to be talking about it in this sort of capacity. But in terms of actual real world effectiveness, I haven't found anything in terms of a practically useful system that will work in the real world like I have with verbal judo. In a roundabout way, what I'm trying to say here is that these concepts that we're going to be talking about, I have used and applied in my everyday life. And I could probably say unironically, without hesitation, that they have indeed saved my life or certainly prevented me from enduring serious harm. So when it comes to what I call arguing like an airbender, verbal judo is one of the underlying core philosophies for how you do this. So what exactly is verbal judo? And we're going to unpack some of its concepts in episodes going forward. This is only going to be a brief introduction and overview. Essentially what verbal judo is, and I don't know how much this training has permeated into the mainstream and how many people actually know about this. So 
If you guys don't know about this, hopefully that'll be some pretty useful information for you. But verbal judo is a communication style developed by George Thompson, who is a English PhD and a street cop, essentially. And basically through his time in both academic world and the more hands-on practical law enforcement world, he came up with a communication style which is geared towards dealing with people who are in extreme situations. They might be extremely disagreeable. They might be extremely emotionally charged. All these kind of situations which in general are not easy for people to deal with and come to terms with. He has tried to create a system in which you can navigate those situations and be a lot more successful. So while this is designed for, it specifically was de originally designed for law enforcement and then has gone into other areas, we're not going to be using it obviously in that capacity, but we're gonna be taking some important principles and key takeaways from verbal judo and moving them into our way of dealing with and arguing with people who vehemently disagree with us. So at its core, what verbal judo intends to do is like the martial arts version of judo, where you take somebody's energy and essentially redirect it away from yourself or redirect it into an opposite direction, and then it can be harnessed for other purposes. So today I'm gonna to just start with the core concepts and core principles of verbal judo. And as we go on through more episodes, we're gonna do things like how to deal with people who are attacking you or insulting you, how to deal with people who don't wanna engage with you, and how to deal with people who may vehemently hate you if you want to go down that road. And of course, there are different types of people and different tactics we can use and depending on what kind of space they're in and what kind of space we're in. So the absolute number one core concept with verbal judo is empathy. You need to have empathy. And this is what I talked about, why people who are earthbenders don't like concepts that involve verbal judo because you do have to have a certain degree of empathy for the people that you're disagreeing with, that you're arguing against, and that you want to bring over to your side. Because when you have empathy for the people who don't agree with you, who are not like you, who don't see the world in the same way that you do, at least you can put yourself in their frame of reference, in their mindset, and then from there, be able to navigate them to where you are. And if you're not able to do that, then essentially you're going to be shooting in the dark. The conversation becomes a lot more about necessarily maybe destruction or humiliation or trying to make your opponents look bad than actually persuading them to our political positions. So you guys may have seen that this does come from verbal judo. It is the five communication maxims for empathetic communication. So if you wanna actually have empathetic communication, you need to be able to engage in these five principles. And of course, these are things which are universal. These are things that we want. I want to be communicated with in this way. I'm assuming you guys want to be communicated with in this way. So the first one is obvious. All people want to be treated with dignity and respect. Obviously, of course, that's basic golden rule kind of stuff. You want to treat everybody with dignity and respect, even if they're somebody who are in a place that, you know, you might not respect where they are. You might not respect what they believe. When you're interacting with them, you have to still at least give them that human dignity and respect. 
So number two, all people want to be asked rather than being told to do something. I can tell you guys, this isn't so much when it comes to our purposes, when it comes to arguing. However, obviously in your own personal lives, this can pay huge dividends when you're talking with your friends or your loved ones or your parents, your spouse, your coworkers, your boss, whatever you want to say, people always would rather be asked than told. Number three, all people want to be told why they're being asked to do something. Again, an obvious thing that you and I can understand, especially for me personally. I hate not knowing why. That's the number one thing. If I'm in a situation where someone is telling me to do something or I need to do something, not knowing why I'm being told to do it will pretty much shut me down entirely. And for our purposes, obviously, it comes to more being able to articulate why we believe what we believe, not necessarily asking somebody to do something in this circumstance, but when we're talking to people who don't agree with us politically, we need to be able to very clearly articulate why we believe the things that we believe and do so in a way that comes from your own internal core values and doesn't necessarily step and trample on theirs. Number four is all people want to be given options rather than threats. Again, nobody likes to be threatened. Anytime you threaten anybody, they're obviously going to push back with a threatened response. I don't know about you guys, but I'm certainly not in the business of threatening people into my political beliefs. I can leave that for the right wing. I don't want to come out there and tell anybody that I'm going to bust up their kneecaps because they're not a Marxist or whatever. But when we are talking with people who are approachable and there are certain degrees, and like I said before, we're going to go through a lot of these degrees. Right now, we're at a very tepid initial degree of contact, right? We're talking with someone who probably is someone that we can find common ground with, that we can get along with, that we can speak reasonably and civilly to. There can be instances where people are not in that frame of mind where they cannot speak reasonably, they cannot speak civilly to you. And there are certain tracks and certain things that we can do when we come to that. But the important thing here and the important thing with these communication maxims is the fact that you do not want to be the person that pushes them into that kind of irritated state where they no longer become receptive to you. And when you do that, yes, and, I, and believe me, I love pushing people's buttons. I love pushing conservative buttons. But when you do that, you recognize, you have to recognize the fact that, yes, that maybe you own the libs, own the cons, whatever political perspective you happen to be owning from that day. We have to recognize the fact that, yes, maybe you quote unquote own them, but you didn't persuade them. You didn't bring them over to your side. You didn't make them actually think about your ideas in a way where they'll actually contend with them. So anyway, that's what can happen when you approach these conversations in a threatening manner. When it comes to giving options, you want to talk about things that you guys have common ground on or talk about ways in which, okay, maybe we can't get to an agreement on universal basic income here, but what if I, for example, what if we do something like get rid of unemployment or all these other programs? Maybe we can find a way to take the money that we're spending anyway and spend it in a more advantageous way to people type of thing. So when you're talking with people who disagree with you, you want to find options that you can find common ground on. And this one's obvious. All people want a second chance, especially if they're reaching out, right? If people aren't reaching out and aren't asking for a second chance, maybe you don't need to give it to them. But if someone is actively 
reaching out and asking and saying, I want a second chance. I think it's definitely better to give it to them than to not give it to them. And this, of course, you could bring this into the realm of things like cancel culture. Yes, everyone has said things that we are not proud of, that we look back on with cringe, that we are obviously disappointed and disgusted in ourselves for saying, and nobody wants to have those things labeled on them for the rest of their lives. And I think this is definitely an attitude that is giving way on the left. And this is definitely something that has been overblown on the left, this idea that everybody has to be morally pure and so on and so forth. I think this is definitely, I've never really felt that way when I interact with leftist circles. And I think this is more kind of an invention by the right. But that being said, at least most people now, when I talk to people who are left-leaning and in left-leaning circles, understand that nobody's perfect and that nobody can be pure and be perfect in all of their dealings for their entire lives and always say the right things and the most sensitive things and treat people in the most respective way. Everybody makes mistakes. Nobody is perfect. And yeah, we all want second chances. And thankfully, this idea that nobody ever gets a second chance is definitely dying off, and it's dying off pretty quick. So these are the five basic backbones of empathetic communication. Anything, Anytime you want to communicate with someone in a real and empathetic and engaging way, you need to be mindful of these five things. And when we're arguing with people who are on that kind of low spectrum in terms of hostility and are we're able to engage with we absolutely want to be very focused on these five principles because the last thing at least i ever want to do especially if i'm talking with somebody in good faith and maybe they don't agree with me politically but we're having a real discussion we're having a real debate is to force them into that area of being in a bad faith conversation and force them from an actual time when we're really talking well with one another and we're actually having a really good conversation to the point where, you know, all of a sudden I am the one that's pushing them to be defensive and I'm pushing them to put the walls up and pushing them to, to flee from this interaction. I don't want to be the person to push somebody into that realm. So certainly when we're talking with people who we can reach and we can reach common ground with, we really want to be focused on empathetic communication. Because so often I feel like when you're talking with people who disagree with you politically, it's like they're just waiting. They're waiting for you to say one thing or a certain thing or say a certain thing in a certain way where they can just pounce on it. And sometimes they can use that to then take the conversation from a good faith conversation to a bad faith one where they can find this certain thing that they can pounce on and then all of a sudden say, okay, now I can dismiss this person in their entirety. What am I trying to say here? When it comes to arguing with conservatives who are on that lowest baseline of hostility, these are people that you think you're able to fairly easily establish common ground with. You just got to remind yourselves of the basics of empathic communication. And there's nothing wrong with that. Every so often, we have to remind ourselves of the fundamentals. The fundamentals of communication are extremely important for success in all aspects of our lives. Unfortunately, as someone who is an introvert, we're, we're social human beings and we've got to find ways to talk to people because we are still at our core social human beings. So if someone is receptive and on a pretty low baseline of hostility, you absolutely don't need to be coming at them hot and heavy, right? There is no reason to be trying to drag up necessarily old things that they said 
and try and fight about that. You want to be trying at some point to have common ground. And once you have common ground, you could actually persuade them over to your political position. That being said, we all know not everybody is at that sort of basic line of communication. The fact of the matter is you are more likely to find that out in the real world because when you're talking with people in the real world, they're not going to talk to you in the same way that they will online. That's for sure. So when it comes to actually arguing with people in different spaces and mostly online, we're going to be having to escalate things a little bit. And that's what we'll be doing in the next episode. What are the basic fundamentals of empathetic communication? And at what point should we be exercising these? In my opinion, absolutely 99.9% of the time, as much as, the, as we possibly can. And I will admit that especially when it comes to being online, that's when a lot of this kind of stuff falls apart. And I think it falls apart for us all, especially considering that when you're arguing with someone who you can't see, you don't know their responses, you don't know who they are. They could be at this point in time, man, they could be an AI bot, could be some sort of little program that some guy made up to waste people's time. Some guy just wants to troll people. So he created like a little AI bot. All he does is post really annoying, irritating comments everywhere. At this point in your life, who knows when you're arguing with people online, who you're arguing with. But in any case, when you're talking with someone who's a level of hostility above neutrality or semi-neutrality, you're going to have to do things a little bit differently. And that will be the thrust of next week's main topic of conversation, which is arguing with people online and particularly conservatives online. And we're going to be delving a lot more into those principles of verbal judo when it comes to that episode and unpacking it a little bit more. Right now, obviously, all that I'm talking to you about is its surface level concepts. And while usually I like to end these type of videos with a feel-good story, I think we started this video with a feel-good story because I don't think that there is any bigger and better feel-good story that I could have come up with than the liberation of Kyrsan. So that is going to bring us to the end of this week's episode of Chatter in the Skull. And until next time, this has been the Comrade signing off for now, and you guys take care.